Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's our Thursday regular with Dave Perry as we look at the anatomy of a crime. Hello there. Hello, Alex. Can't think of a better place to be on Valentine's <laughs> Yeah, that's what everyone's telling me. I can't wait to spend my time with you, Pearson. All right, we've um, got a few headlines, uh, certainly, that came out. The one headline um, that you had kind of highlighted was this lead detective in Bruce MacArthur's case has left a homicide. That happened a couple of days ago. This is David Dickinson moving into the canine unit in something that was uh, kind of coined as therapeutic relief. Is there more to the story, or does this make sense? No, this makes pretty good sense to me. Um, I'm not saying that I've ever done anything at the the level that he had to do in something like the MacArthur case, but uh, we've all had that one case or two or three cases where it got kind of ridiculous and, you know, the stress level and the amount of hours that you have to put in take its toll on everybody. And I'm guessing he has to ground himself and probably reunite with a lot of loved ones that he hasn't seen in a very long time. So this is a pretty normal thing to do. Not to mention being around animals. I think that would have to help. And I say that, it sounds like I'm being facetious, but I have to think that being around a dog for a while, you know, in the canine unit would actually, you know, not be such a bad place. But, you know, you're, you're, I think one of your bigger profiled cases, and I'm, you know, you can remind me of some of the other ones, is Holly Jones. That certainly was a stressful case in a much, much different time. But what generally happens once homicide cops move off of one big high profile case and kind of put it to bed after the the trial and all the rest of it? Uh, what generally happens? Do you step back or do you just dive into another file? Well, you generally dive into another file, but um, I'm sure a lot of officers who wouldn't talk about it while they're on the job would probably reflect back like I do now and realize that um, you go through a process whereby you crash. Mm-hmm. You know, you're so mm-hmm. intent intense on an investigation you've got so many things going on in your life and suddenly you solve it and or you get to court and the and the case is concluded sometimes you actually crash a little bit because you've been running on adrenaline for months Mm -hmm. and months and months and when that adrenaline is not there anymore it's it's quite an interesting uh it's quite an interesting process that you go through so i i'm sure that this detective has gone through that he's probably struggling with uh, all of the normal things that you would struggle with and uh in a very high-profile, intense case like this. And I've always said this, uh, why we, we need to, in this city, just take a moment and reflect and be thankful that uh, not only he, but all the other officers on this team dedicated and put their heart and soul into the investigation. Yeah, and certainly they still have to go through the review process, which in itself will be stressful because, you know, it's like, you're always he'll he'll be in I think a position right now checking and dotting the eyes and crossing the T's in his head wondering did I drop the ball did I drop the ball so that worry will stay until this review's done. Yeah, he's going to carry this for quite some time, but uh, you know the Toronto Police is, is always they've always been good about doing that. Uh, you know, taking care of people when they need to be taken care of. Sometimes we don't recognize things as quickly as we should, and we don't give people the break that they, maybe they should have had a little bit sooner, but. I, I like the fact that he's got five years in the unit and he's moving on to do something else. I saw others, a lot of them very good friends of mine who spent, you know, 10, 12, 15 years in homicide. 
and therefore missed watching their children grow up and missed all of those very important dates in our lives and and dedicated their heart and soul, and you can't get those years back. So it's a good thing for him to move on and and to do some other things and recharge the batteries. You went from homicide to what, sex crimes? I went from homicide out to 42 Division, back into the fire, running the detective office out there, Mm. and then into sex crimes. But nobody ever forced me to do it. Uh, You know, we have choices, and it was the kind of work that I, I was really passionate about. But... Albeit no, sex crimes is not, like, it doesn't get the, the same kind of profile that homicide gets. I would suggest that sex crimes is is almost worse because, like, some of the stuff, I mean, certainly when I, there's a few cases of, of child porn cases. I mean, some of the images that you just can't forget them. Some of it is worse. And one of the differences, and it's it's hard for me to describe this in a way that, you know, is, is not going to offend somebody, but... Right. Um, in homicide, you're, the time you arrive on scene, your victim is deceased, mm-hmm. right? And in sex crimes, you show up on scene and your victim is alive and they're dealing with all of those such severe traumatic issues that we all know they go through. And it's it's heart-wrenching and it's heartbreaking. And you're watching a, a living, breathing human being trying to recover from what could be the worst crime possible. So it, both of them are are very tough jobs and ones that uh, from time to time we have to take care of each other and when it's the right time you got to move on do something else yeah um the toronto police and i i gotta be honest i'm very i i wouldn't say i'm surprised by this i just i find it irritating uh the chief uh chief saunders coming out and saying that they are going to scrap this plan to acquire uh, a piece of technology that picks up the sound of gunfire and then reports that um, you know, to the frontline officers. But this, they're suggesting that it could violate charter rights because there's a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction. Uh, I think it's like six or seven seconds that when the gunfire goes off, it opens up the cameras that could inadvertently pick up another sound, like maybe Doug at the bus stop who, um, you know, said hi to the bus driver. And they're concerned before anything's even happening that that could happen in a potential court case. So they're they're kicking down a program or something that could really help stop serious gun crime over something that may or may not happen. Yeah, I mean, aren't we seeing a pattern forming here where rather than dealing with the most serious issue facing the city, which is uh, gun violence, we're more concerned about things like somebody might be inadvertently picked up on an audio tape or a camera somewhere within the city, I, I think it's gotten to the ridiculous, quite frankly. Well, how, does a co- how do, how do cops then investigate their... How do cops like you investigate crimes if all we're worried about is charter challenges? Well, it's getting harder and harder every day. And as, as you know, I speak to police officers day to day and I hear from them all the frustrations of having their powers taken away and having te- now we're having technology taken away from them that was supposed to help them, but... Uh, I gotta tell you, Alex. This, you know, I wasn't all that excited when the mayor announced that this is the technology that we're going for. I'm thinking, you know, really, what is that going to do? Mm-hmm. So there's there's gunfire, and yes, we're, we're going to have some coordinates, and the police are going to arrive, and we're going to do like we do so many times and show up, and nobody's there, and there's shell casings all over the place. Sometimes there's a body, but that's all we have. So I, I didn't see this as something that was going to change the world in Toronto. And I still believe the thing that's going to change the world is to start supporting the police and giving them the powers that they've had in the past to just go out and do their job, to go into these very difficult areas and to stop and investigate people and 
to keep intelligence information so that when a crime happens, you've got a better chance of solving it. So we're just, this is just yet another example that we've lost our way. Yeah, but it also, it's, you don't get elected when you, when you say stuff like that. So it's very political. It's all about, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you and I, I know we've talked about this before, but I I like the mayor. Um, I've met him personally. I, I like him. But what I don't like is that he's running the Toronto Police Service. Yeah. And I don't like the fact that he has so much power and he makes decisions that just typically in the past weren't up to the mayor to make. They were up to the chief of police to make. So when you start making these decisions about uh, technology and the number of officers and how they're going to be deployed and whether or not they can stop and investigate and do street investigations and all of that, and when the mayor is making those decisions and the mayor not be may not be fully uh, aware of all the things that a police officer after, you know, 25 or 30 years and is now the chief with all that knowledge has to do and you take those powers away. Mm-hmm. I think that's where we're on a slippery slope. Yeah, for sure. Uh, just before I let you go, I did want to ask you about this because this this is something that we're seeing way, way too much. But the woman found uh, not criminally responsible for stabbing Rosemary Jr. This is that young woman, newlywed, who was uh, minding her own business in December of 2015 in a shopper's drug mart, just shopping. Mm-hmm. And this woman gets stabbed to death. And, um, you know, the accused was uh, convicted but then ruled not criminally responsible. And so now the facility, the mental health facility, that she's at is easing her conditions so that she can, you know, go out on day passes and stuff. And I got to be honest, I think this is such a slap in the face of the, again, of the victims again and again and again. It's like justice is not being seen to be done. Yeah, that's the biggest element that's missing today is justice. And I understand when somebody is criminally not responsible. I had another a number of homicide cases where the people that I arrested, one of them, quite frankly, as soon as I arrested her, I realized there wasn't a chance we were going to get her to go through the criminal court. She Mm -hmm. was clearly somebody who was suffering a major mental health issue, Mm -hmm. and and I get that. So rather than being tried and convicted for homicide. She was sent to a mental health facility. But what shocked me and offended me was that six months later, she personally called me at the homicide squad and asked me for her passport, which got my interest. (laughs) And I said, why would you want your passport? She said, because I'm getting out of here soon. And I actually phoned the the head psychiatrist at the facility that she was in. And the way he described it to me is that she was clearly suffering the most major mental health issue when she committed the homicide but now that we've treated her, she no longer has that, and she's no longer a risk to the community. Therefore, we're preparing for her release, and, and I would agree with you that that's a very serious issue. It's wrong on every level, and it just, once again, slap. it's a slap in the face to the surviving victims of a homicide. I mean, we're talking like six months since, it hasn't even been six months since she was, she was sentenced, so I, I'm like... I don't understand. If this woman stops taking her medication in two years or whatever, like they haven't even been able to structure a a pattern for her. Like it's to me, it's just this is happening way too often. And I like why why yeah. bother putting them through the system at all if you're just going to let them go? Yeah, I think there has to be a balance. But there's where we've lost our way again. Is that the balance used to be um, ha- helping people to recover from the mental health issue that they suffered from mm. and also making sure that they were away long enough that in some way justice was met, and especially for the families of, of these victims. 
And now it's just done in such an isolated yeah. way that focuses completely on the individual, the person who yeah. committed the homicide and getting them healthy and then releasing them as soon as possible without any, you know, any consideration for the people that are still reeling from what happened. Yeah, it's, 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 not, it's no longer corrections and justice. It's all about rehab, which is, I don't think Canadians by and large, that's the direction they want to go, but it is the way it is. Uh, Dave, is thank you. I appreciate you joining us. Oh, always a pleasure. All right. That's uh, Dave Perry, who uh, joins us weekly for these Anatomy of the Crime. He's, uh, of course, our expert on all things and CEO over at Investigative Solutions Network Incorporated. Here on Point, I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.